HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The following episode of The Farm Report has been brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink. The Museum of Food and Drink is holding a Getting the Ball Rolling fundraiser Sunday, March 27th at 1 p.m. You can find out more at their website, which is mofad.org. That's M-O-F-A-D dot O-R-G. Okay, it's Thursday at one o'clock, and you are turned turned on to tuned into the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to the Farm Report. We are coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, two sixty one Moore Street. It is a beautiful sunny day, and we are in studio with Mara Gittleman of Farming Concrete. Mara, so nice to have you on the show today. How you doing? Fine. Thanks, Erin, for bringing me on. I'm excited to be here. Me too. Me too. I'm like I I'm in a a little bit of a rush because I want to go outside and enjoy some of this beautiful <laughs> sunshine. It's like the first kind of really nice, warm, sunny day we've had in the BK in a while. So, um, Mara, I know that you've been a guest of the station before. Uh, you've been on the hot grease a couple of times with Nicole, I think most recently mm-hmm. um, back in the fall. And so some of our listeners may be familiar with your work, but for those of, um, those of them who are not and maybe are new to you, why don't you tell us a little bit about Farming Concrete? Sure. Farming Concrete is a citizen science project at best. We are a group of gardeners, cartographers, researchers, all sorts of people coming together to figure out how much food community gardeners are growing in New York City. Um, and so we have a lot, a lot of goals, a lot of outcomes to come with that, um, but... In the end, it's just a fun kind of in-the-garden science project. Awesome. And this is not a new project for you. It's something you've been working on for a few years now. Yeah, we started at the end of 2009. Last year was our first year, though. Last year was our pilot year, and we had a lot of awesome involvement, um, and we're going for year two this year. Excellent. And is this your full-time gig? No. I work at Kingsborough Community College, uh, where we're starting a farm. Um, and I work on a couple other citizen science projects, too. But this is surely takes up a lot of time. Last year was a full-time gig. Okay. And so it's not a full-time gig this year because you wanted to do some other stuff or you ran out of funding or what, what, what kind of changed between this year and last year for you? Actually, last year, our, our entire funding was about $1,500 and we were able to pull it off. Oh, this so year. You, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> um, 
uh, this year we were able to streamline it a bit better and we have a wide network of gardeners who are interested and able and um, are helping each other out. So uh, the way we've set it up, it's, it's more of a, of a networked project than it is someone's job. Awesome. Awesome. So I was checking out your website a little bit earlier today. Can you give that for our guests so if they want to learn more about you or tune in to that while we're talking? Sure. We have tons of information about the project and how to get involved and how to do it in your own garden, regardless of whether or not you're in New York City at farmingconcrete.org. And we also have an interactive web map with the results from 2010 at harvest.farmingconcrete.org. Awesome. So you had your first, you know, kind of full year. You just wrapped 2010. What what were you say were the kind of the big takeaways of the year? I mean, how, did, did the project kind of go as you envisioned it? How is the data being used? Like what were some of the, the big learnings that you guys had? Yeah, um, we got started a little bit late. We had our first meeting with a group of about 20 volunteers uh, in the very beginning of June, which in Gardner world is is way too late. You've already missed the spring season. Um, so it was kind of a big push to get out there and get our project going, um, which was a lot of fun. We chose to do it mostly on foot and mostly in person. Um, and that way we were able to reach a lot of gardens and a lot of gardeners um, without um, encountering any internet biases or any of that. A lot of gardeners are not on the internet, so we chose not to use it for our first year. Sure, and I think that's that's like a big realization for people getting into community development work is that this tool that you come out of school kind of revved up and ready to use often is not really the best way to reach the populations right. you're trying to work with. For sure, and since this is a pretty literally on-the-ground project, we decided that face-to-face -face conversations were better and helped us shape the project more effectively than if we had sent out a mailing or any of the other typical means of outreach. Okay, so you, you guys kind of sat down, you wrote up a list of places to visit, and then I'm sure as you were going from site to site, they were like, oh, do you know about so-and-so? Or I mean, the project probably expanded a little bit within the midst of, of the work. Was it challenging to kind of add as you go or was that not really the case no it wasn't very challenging to add as we went mostly because we had such an amazing crew of volunteers who could go out to a bunch of gardens do lots of outreach and then go out again with scales and binders and, all, and harvest logs and all the materials needed for the project if we didn't have that team the project would not have worked where did those people come from all over the place some were um like educators and students at schools who ha had some time off in the summer, and this was just a part-time volunteer thing on weekends. Um, we had people involved through our partner organizations, which are Green Thumb, New York Restoration Project, and Just Food. Uh, people responded to um, requests for internships on idealist.org. We had people from all over. That's awesome. Yeah. That's great. So what were some of, the, 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 some of your findings? So the the big results from yeah, last yeah, year, yeah. Dun, we're really dun, excited. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> um, we hope to actually come out with a report this month, um, a big overall report, and then we're sending each garden that participated their own individual report. Um, we were able to, the project has two sides. We have gardeners who are actually weighing everything that comes out of their raised bed. Um, and we had 110 gardeners do that throughout the growing season last year. Um, and the other part is crop inventory and which we actually count every single edible plant that's growing in a garden. What? <laughs> um, <laughs> and that way we're able to average the 
pounds per plant in e- for each of the gardeners weighing their produce multiply by the number of plants we know exist in a garden and we have an estimate of how much food was grown. So last year we spent most of our energy on outreach and we were but we were still able to inventory 67 gardens which we're really proud of doing. There are about there are more than 400 community gardens in the city that are producing food, about 500 community gardens in total and okay. we were able to get to I guess like a sixth or seventh of them. And um, can we just take a pause for a second and define like community? I was thinking yeah. about this on the way. I'm like, is a community garden like what? What makes it? Is that different? How is it different than like my garden in my backyard? And like where? Where do you kind of draw the line? Or sure. What are the parameters? That's a great place to step back and, <laughs> and talk a little bit. Um, the ACGA defines a community garden as any space where people are gardening. So more than one person, any space where more than one person is planting something. Um, in New York City. I mean, that could be anyone's backyard. That could be any place, any location. We chose to narrow the definition of community garden to those spaces that are open to the public that anyone can join. Um, And so in that way, we uh, last year we didn't include school gardens. That's probably going to change this year. School gardens are arguably also community gardens. And did you find as far as like the dispersion of these gardens, are they are are they concentrated in? particular boroughs or areas and and what do you think maybe led to concentrations if there are yeah if you look at the map of community gardens it's really interesting they're concentrated in south bronx upper manhattan lower manhattan and central brooklyn and a lot of that comes from uh the burning down of tons of buildings and urban decline in the 70s and 80s you're left with tons of vacant lots in certain neighborhoods and that was intentional um on the part of those who were burning down their buildings and and leaving. Um, And so as a response, people in the neighborhood would take over the vacant lots and clean them out and create gardens. And that's why you see concentrations of gardens in certain neighborhoods. Okay. So I know, like, um, I've done a little bit of research on the urban farming movement in Detroit, and it seems like there's this real... Um, kind of social, social justice, take back the take back the land mentality where people are literally kind of illegally farming on on plots that have been vacant for years and um what what is the scene like in in the city i mean what is the role of of city government or the city planners um in kind of allowing those spaces to exist or um you know are gardens under threat um for development especially in areas like as they kind of look to gentrify like are people yeah it's a it's a huge issue right now um you know during the 70s, 80s, and 90s, um, these spaces were largely ignored by the city. Um, neighborhood residents would just be able to garden kind of without anyone knocking on their door to try to take that away. Um, now, as real estate prices are going up, um, I mean, we, there was a huge conflict about a decade ago when Rudy Giuliani, who was mayor at the time, tried to auction off all most of the gardens in the city, at least the ones that were on city-owned property. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result, we now have a few land trusts. We have the New York Restoration Project. We have um, a few mechanisms for protecting the land. Um, however, there's nothing in place right now that makes gardens permanent. We are very, very lucky, though, that we have... Uh, an institution like Green Thumb, which is part of the Parks Department, which supports community gardens all over the city. If you register with them, you get free materials, you get all sorts of support, which not every city has. Yeah. Are there other things that you've noticed um, as far as like that set New York apart? I mean, obviously, 
As New Yorkers, we like to think of ourselves as very unique and special <laughs> and different from everyone else. Um, maybe a little bit better. But, uh, you know, it's it's interesting, like, when you look at egg in New York State, how far behind the state is compared to our neighbors like New Jersey or Pennsylvania with, with regards to just, you know, land preservation. I mm-hmm. mean, what is the dynamic in New York City? Do you have a sense of how it compares to kind of other major metropolitan areas across the U.S.? The interesting thing about cities like New York City and Philadelphia and Detroit, um, when it comes to community gardens, is that they are pretty much entirely bottom up. They are people who live next door, who cleaned them out, opened them up, and planted stuff. In a lot of other cities, you see it more as an an organization tool, as a nonprofit tool. The nonprofit sets it up and opens it up to someone else. It's a very different structure. And so here, I think because we have a power in numbers, we have so many people who have been invested in creating these spaces and maintaining these spaces and keeping them available for future generations – um, we have that support network should gardens get threatened again. It's you have a lot of people to call on. Okay, so there's like a, a, a I call them a militia, of <laughs> but I just know I was at you know Speaker Quinn's like announcement of food works, and there yeah. was like some folks from the community garden um, world who who were kind of standing up and seemed pretty like outraged by by the lack of kind of city city council's response to to, I guess, a petition to protect gardens in a more kind of legal way. The New York City Community Garden Coalition is working really, really hard with other partners around the city, including Speaker Quinn and some folks from the State Department of Agriculture, um, to think through possible futures, legislative futures, actual laws for community gardens in New York City. Right now, if you look at the... um, tax label for community gardens they're still labeled as vacant lots because we don't have another option right now we don't have another zoning category we don't have any of that and so we're looking at whatever future law could and should happen um and yeah so the new york city community garden coalition is working on that if folks want to get involved awesome i think that's like something um it's it's always interesting as urban residents to kind of think more broadly about ways you can get involved in food production. I mean, it doesn't always have to be growing something, you know, it's like showing up at your community board meetings or just being, you know, engaged and aware and and lending your name to organizations that are out kind of doing the work uh, on the ground is also like a really powerful tool. So I'm curious, you know, I, I'm in grad school myself right now and was doing research on, you know, programs across the country looking at like who in the nation was doing work around food policy or, you know, or urban farming being one component of that. And it sounds like you have gotten quite an education. So where, where'd you get that? Where's all that info <laughs> coming from? I mean, are there, is it, is it a, is a school, is it a more formal thing? Is it an informal thing? Like, what do you recommend for other people kind of looking to, to tuck into this movement? Yeah. My education on these issues surely started at school. I went to Tufts university, um, I was an undergraduate there, but was really plugged into the uh, Urban Environmental Policy and Planning Program, which is where my cartography background came from and a lot of my interest in policy. However, I have learned a lot more of the specifics, actually just being involved with groups like the New York City Community Garden Coalition. Um, We've had meetings where we've sat down with policy and try to uh, translate the quote-unquote legalese into something we can understand and, and that type of thing. And that has been just as powerful for me. 
Yeah, I think one of the things that I find most fascinating about your work is is this data component. I know because you as you're looking to make that transition um, into the policy world, like that's a language that people really mm-hmm. understand. So you're really creating this tool that people can look to and say, well, this is happening here. This is the production levels here. And I mean, have you as as far as like I know, so you're getting your you're getting your results together now. I mean, what what in your your like dream world would happen with with your final report, essentially from 2010? Sure. I mean, a lot of a lot of outcomes I, I hope will happen. The what I like about this project and other civic data type projects is that we put the entire process of collecting data into our own hands, into the hands of people who will use it. Um, so each garden had a different reason for wanting to be a part of the project. Some wanted to just know how much they were growing, maybe because they wanted to fundraise or use it as a tool for more visibility and get more members. Um, a bunch of gardens want to know if they are, by USDA definition, a farm, which is producing at least $1,000 worth of produce. Um, what, and- okay, so let's. I want to I talk a little bit more about that point, but we need to take a quick break. Sure. And when we come back, we'll tuck into the USDA. Great. service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Every Tuesday at noon, Dave Arnold, the author of CookingIssues.com, will discuss new and innovative techniques, equipment, and ingredients. Call in with your own questions to see if Dave and the crew can solve your cooking issues. Again, that's Tuesdays at noon on the Heritage Radio Network. Okay, we're back. You're tuned in to The Farm Report on the Heritage Radio Network. We are live in studio with Mara Gittleman of Farming Concrete. And before the break, we were talking about um, community gardeners in New York, kind of wondering if they're producing $1,000 worth of food. And that's essentially what qualifies you as a farm in the eyes of the USDA? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a few more nuances there, but... That's the bottom line. If you're looking at just uh, some quantify some way to quantify your food production, that that's it. That's the that's the baseline. And so, if you're you're defined as a farm, I have to imagine that there's like some kind of benefit to that tax benefit, or I mean, do you have a sense of like why people would care about how they're defined? I think the main reason is that 
if we know that there are 300 farms in New York City, maybe we need some sort of agriculture budget or infrastructure in the city government to help out with that, which we don't have right now. I think gardeners are just exploring all possible options for defining this land. Um, and this is this helps define one of them. Okay, so urban ag has kind of come under. I mean, I know there's like some parts of the world, uh, like Cuba, comes to mind most most like recently as far as where they really are producing a lot of food in an urban setting, and we have some models like that in the U.S. You know, Growing Hope in Milwaukee, where they're mm-hmm. they're doing a pretty intensive um, farming on a really small space, but. What do you think really is the role of urban egg? I mean, how as far as from a production standpoint, obviously we're not going to feed New York on food growing in New York or even you know New York State at this point. Um, how do you how do you feel like people respond to that that critique or that criticism of like who cares about urban egg? We need to focus on you know egg and egg in the uh, more rural areas of the state. It needs to be a combination of both. We don't. Nobody, I think, assumes that we are going to feed everyone within city borders, nor do we want to. Um, A lot of gardeners and people in the food movement here are trying to build those connections with rural farmers because we need them. A lot of community gardens in New York City have farmers markets, and they bring in a combination of farmers from upstate and Long Island and their own garden produce um, as a supplement. And so those relationships are being built and need to be built, um, and we don't necessarily assume that everything's going to happen here. Community gardens and urban agriculture are more so educational tools. We can figure out how to grow our own food and we can teach the next generation how to grow our own food. And if we can recognize where food comes from, we might be more likely to eat healthy, all of that, all of those benefits. And in a lot of cases, this is kids' one interaction with the environment and to connect with nature. Do you have a garden? Yes. What do you grow? <laughs> oh, I hope to grow a lot more this year. I'm part of the Prospect Heights Community Farm, um, and with that garden in Prospect Heights, Brooklyn, I am just helping out with the communal flower cutting bed and the communal herb garden since I have a backyard. Um, and in our backyard, our garlic has already sprouted. We're very excited about that. Today's St. Patty's Day, right? So we yeah. got, got, <laughs> we're going to get peas planted tomorrow. Um, mostly vegetables, although I am exploring ornamental plants too, native plants mostly. Okay. What do you think? I mean, uh, we, New York got hit pretty hard with the tomato blight last year and there's been speculation that, that that blight, you know, was a result of kind of essentially like mass produced plants that, that were contaminated. Do you have recommendations as far as if people are wanting to start their own garden, where they should go to get their kind of seeds or seedlings or soil or any, any of that kind of gear? Right. There are a lot of options of where to get all of that, all of that, those um, supplies. If you are a community gardener, Green Thumb provides all those supplies. If you go to workshops, um, which is exciting, and otherwise seedlings, farmers markets, uh, most of the farmers markets, farmers are bringing in baby plants, and you can buy those directly. And those I would trust. Um, also, Hudson Valley has a seed co- Hudson Valley Seed Company, I think they're called, um, is is very trustworthy as well. Okay, so Grow NYC is you can just go on to grownyc.org and that's the the green market, the farmers market right, system yeah. throughout. And they their their markets are ramping up. There's some that go year round and then um, they have links on their site to kind of what's in season now, what's available. You can also ask your local community garden. My community garden has an annual very well-known plant sale 
And so you can always check that out. And there are also seed swapping events. There are people who do seed saving can trade with each other. Um, so there, there are a lot of options for getting the supplies in the city and not running the risk of getting any sort of disease. No, no, I just, I, I like people often assume because I'm like really into food that I'm, I'm like a master gardener and I am just, I'm, I'm so bad at it. I'm like lucky that I'm living with a roommate right now who has somewhat of a green thumb, but um, I'm, I feel ambitious. I have a backyard for the first time this year, so I'm going to delve into a little bit of growing and, and kind of see how it goes. Um, let's talk a little bit about the results from, from your, from your work this, from 2010, if you want to kind of cover some of the stuff that you guys found that was interesting. Sure. Um, so in the first half of this program, we talked about how, how much involvement we had. We had 110 gardeners who were weighing their harvest throughout the growing season. That's everything coming out of their raised bed, usually eight by four, not that big, um, but added together pretty significant um, and we were able to do 67, we were able to do crop inventory in 67 gardens. So the results I'm about to say have to do with those 67 gardens and not all of the gardens across the city. Okay. So cumulatively, we had about 1.7 acres of land under production. So 1.7 acres cumulatively across 67 gardens um, had uh, almost 40,000 edible plants, 87,000 pounds of produce, which we calculated to be about $215,000 worth. Whoa. So we're talking about just two seasons, summer and fall. We skipped the spring. We're only talking about vegetables. We're not talking about fruit trees or herbs. And um, we're only talking about 67 gardens. And so less than two acres. Less than two acres. Wow. wow. So we're pretty excited about that. Um, last year was a pretty productive season. It was really hot so if you and really sunny. So if you had access to water, those vegetables were gorgeous. Um, and so we're looking forward to involving a lot more gardens this year so we can, we can make, um, broad estimates as to citywide production in community gardens. We'd like our estimates to be a little bit more accurate. Sure. Sure. So what do you, I mean, like, what is the, the future of farming concrete? I mean, what do you, you guys plan on collecting data on an annual basis or how do you see kind of the, the work that you've started evolving over the next, you know, five years? We're hoping to at least put enough effort in to get three years worth of data um, and use that to create an online tool that anyone could use either in New York City or elsewhere um, if to estimate um, garden yield. So we're hoping to create something where you can say, okay, I had seven tomato plants and three cucumber plants and type that in and get an estimated yield based on what New York City gardeners are actually growing, not commercial, not commercial farmers. And do you find that there's, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't know if you've, you've looked into this, but the the kind of yields, um, are, are they pretty different from in an urban setting versus a rural setting? That's something we really want to look at. I'm, I'm curious, too. We haven't gotten there yet. Um, there's still a lot of room to play around with the with the results. Okay, cool. Well, we're looking forward to kind of having you back on in three years. <laughs> and, and we can talk about like the, the accumulation of your work. And so obviously, this is, you know, a side project for you. Um, any any aspirations uh, in, in your more like full time employment for for kind of growing this into something more organizationally where you're able to like support yourself or support a staff or you know, what's your dream? <laughs> Um, I mean, I kind of like this project to stay small and to, I mean, small and effective. Mm -hmm. I think that if we can mobilize people who like to design 
research tools, simple research tools, and make them available in make them available and accessible, um, multiple languages, hard copy, online copy, <laughs> however many formats these can be in, we can create so much more information about our city and about our world and use that to define ourselves. Um, and it's, it's really different than having um, an institution do research. And there's space for that and there's need for that. Um, but we don't necessarily intend on being a full-fledged organization as long as we can continue to do this work. Okay. And so I think, yeah, that's like one of the fascinating things about about data. You know, you look at kind of who's collecting information and maybe like what their bias is mm-hmm. behind that. And it it's nice that, you know, it seems like you've really set up a system here where the it, it's very it's very grassroots, like the people who are most invested in the process um, are able to create a tool essentially, you know, for themselves and kind of shape that that research in a way that's like useful for them, but also provides kind of a somewhat more objective collection of information to be used on a, on a broader level. Do you, so, so creating toolkits essentially um, that's something that other cities around the country could, could kind of go to. Yeah, absolutely. And are you getting requests for that kind of stuff already? I mean, has there been a, (laughs) there have been a couple of requests for our materials um, in other cities and we're happy to share it. Um, in terms of our online map, we like to keep that zeroed in on New York City. Um, mm-hmm. And in terms of the analysis we do, we like to keep it zeroed in on New York City. I think once we get a couple of years down here, we might open that up and make it totally open. But in terms of our the actual harvest log forms that we use and the crop inventory forms that we use, we share those. Awesome. Awesome. It's kind of funny. Like, I, I imagine you've kind of quickly rocketed to the, the top of the list for for ur- as urban farming experts. I mean, it's like such a small world that I think people are really searching for some, you know, someone to identify with. And I mean, it's funny. I don't consider myself an expert on it at all because we're, you know, we're always looking to I, I like that's one of the reasons why I love working with community gardens and why I'm part of a community garden is to is to learn is to ask all those questions um, and so we have so many experts in New York City who have been planting here for decades. Um, and so I have, I have so much respect for that. Awesome. And give us a sense, like any kind of like favorite crops that you see from garden to garden. I mean, is there like a is there an MO for NYC gardeners? Um, by far, <laughs> tomatoes are the most popular crop okay. by far. A little bit further down but still highest up on the list are peppers and beans. They're pretty, pretty common uh, crops. And in terms of greens, collard greens are the most popular. We were most shocked by a bunch of gardeners in the Bronx who were growing sugarcane. Oh, wow. um, Which we didn't know grows here. And in fact, it's not supposed to grow here. But, you know, in theory, we have the urban heat island effect. The city is more, is warmer than anywhere else around the area. So um, I guess it is possible to grow some tropical plants. Who knew? Something to look forward to in the future. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. And we look forward to having you back to, to see how the 2011 growing season is going. Thanks so much, Erin. This was fun. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.
The following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. The Snacky Tunes compilation has arrived and is available for free on our website, heritageradionetwork.com. This compilation features live performances from some of the hottest acts around today, including Midnight Magic, Surfer Blood, Overhopper, and more. Again, you can download this compilation for free on our website, heritageradionetwork.com, and make sure to listen to Snacky Tunes every Monday at 2 p.m. on Heritage Radio Network. The following is a public service announcement from the Museum of Food and Drink. Dave Arnold and Patrick Martins have gathered a team of New York's most innovative chefs and bartenders to create a nine-course fundraiser lunch at Del Posto, Sunday, March 27th. Their intent? To kickstart the greatest food museum in the world. The menu for this unprecedented event is derived from educational themes of the museum. Chefs will draw inspiration from sources outside their normal sphere. How will a cutting-edge chef handle the Paleolithic, or a dish only using pre-Columbian ingredients? What will a modern Italian chef do with ancient Rome? The chefs include David Chang of Momofuku, Wiley Dufresne of WD-50, Mark Ladner of Del Posto, Nils Noren of the French Culinary Institute, Cesare Casella of Salumeria Rossi, Carlo Maracci of Roberta's, Brooks Headley of Del Posto, and Christina Tozzi of Momofuku Milk Bar. Bartenders include Audrey Sanders of Pegu Club, Thomas Waugh of Death & Company, Simon Ford of Pernod Ricard, Damon Boltley of Prime Meats, and Eben Clem of BR Guest Restaurants. Proceeds from the event will directly support the Museum of Food and Drink. Tickets are very limited and $250 per person. To purchase tickets, please visit mofad.eventbrite.com. That's M-O-F-A-D dot eventbrite.com. Once again, M-O-F-A-D dot E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E dot com. Sponsored by Pernod Ricard, Heritage Foods USA, Pat LaFrieda Meats, Barterhouse Wines, Del Posto Restaurant.